Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics related to the human condition. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Abdul Omari. Dr. Omari is the CEO and founder of AOMO Enterprise, which is a training institute that specializes in leadership development, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Dr. Omari was born, raised, and lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where George Floyd was recently murdered by a white police officer, sparking an uprising of protests across the country demanding equality and justice for black Americans. In this interview, Dr. Omari gives us a deeper insight into what he calls the paradox of Minnesota. He says it's a place that's consistently ranked high on the charts compared to other cities for its art scene, education parks, and healthcare, yet has the biggest racial disparities in the country for things like unemployment and education. Dr. Omari explains what cultural intelligence is and what leaders can do to start implementing effective change in their organizations when it comes to developing a more inclusive workplace. We wrap up the conversation by discussing what communities across the country can do in order to begin the healing process. We hope this episode acts as a conversation starter about race relations at home and abroad for you and your communities near and far. As always, if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it far and wide and kindly leave a review. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to bring you Dr. Abdul Omari. Abdul Omari, welcome to the podcast. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well today. Thank you uh, for having me. Now, Abdul, where are you joining us from? I am in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I was born, raised, and continue to live today. Now, given the current uh, state of affairs as it pertains to just the epicenter of what's going on right now with George Floyd's murder, what's it feel like to be in Minneapolis right now? There's a moment of uncertainty, I think, where A lot of people are happy that there's a little bit more calm, but also I think nervous that the calm is suggesting that things are going to go back to normal. And many people recognize that what was normal hopefully will never be again, because we know how that has played out and impacted and benefited some people and not other people. And then just a little bit more broadly, I would say certainly over the past two plus weeks, there has been a significant amount of ebb and flow and up and down and uh, multiple emotions that one will feel simultaneously at any given point. And then for folks like myself, who are very much steeped in in the work of leadership development, equity, diversity, and inclusion, um, a lot of bracketing. I'd like to switch gears right now, and we'll come back to what it's like to be in Minneapolis right now following George Floyd's death, but um, how do you describe what you do for work, Abdul? Yeah, so I'm an independent consultant. Uh, I started my company in 2013 while I was still in my PhD program. It's called AMO Enterprise, and I primarily focus on uh, leadership development uh, and what I call the inseparable links uh, to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so my work shows up in multiple formats. Uh, In many ways, it's the delivery of workshops, seminars, and keynotes, and helping to develop people. Uh, If you think about organizations, you have the structural kind of organizational development side of things, and then you have the people side of things. And my bread and butter is on the people uh, side of things. And I'm kind of curious to know, like, what was the origin for you wanting to step into this space? Was it that your parents were immigrants to the United States, from what I understand? 
one of your parents was from Kenya and one of your parents was from Jordan. Like what exactly was it for you to kind of want to explore and dive into this space and essentially hold this space for people to better understand and connect with one another? So, I mean, this was a, a transformative experience for me in that I finished undergraduate and went into graduate school into a two-year master's degree and then onto a PhD program uh, with the full intent of becoming a professor at a large research one institution similar to my alma mater, the University of Minnesota. And in year two of my PhD program, it was 2012, uh, the recession was in full effect. Institutions were not hiring many faculty members. And if they were, it was top notch uh, students that were graduating. And I was having some realizations that I didn't love research. I wasn't a great, uh, strong writer, kind of questioning what I was going to do and what I wanted to do. And around that time, I got offered the opportunity to start teaching a leadership course uh, for undergraduate students at the University of Minnesota. And about a year after that is when I had this idea that perhaps I could uh, begin to think about developing some leadership seminars. And over time, I was very hesitant to go into the diversity, inclusion, equity space. And I significantly pushed back and I'd have conversations with, with HR professionals at different organizations and I would pitch to them my, my leadership seminars. And almost 100% of people would say, oh, you should meet our diversity, inclusion people. Or, oh, I think it'd be great for you to talk to our diversity inclusion people. And at the time, I didn't even advertise bias sessions or cultural intelligence sessions. Uh, It was all focused in leadership development, groups and teams and that type of thing. And then over the years, particularly around the time of the 2016 election, I had been getting asked to do more and more around bias and some cultural intelligence work. And that's when I finally decided that it was something that folks were, were asking for and a need that was there. And by nature of having immigrant parents, by nature of going through my own journey of identity development um, from someone who shows up and people say, yeah, he's black. But then knowing that I have a Muslim father, a Christian mother and immigrant parents and kind of navigating who is Abdul Majid within this context, particularly of Minnesota, as I was growing up, the reality is I show up, I live, I breathe equity. And so it became apparent to me that this was something that I needed to fully step into and own and take it as it came. Oh, that's great, Abdul. Now, could you define what cultural intelligence is just so everybody's on the same page? What I am talking about when I'm talking about cultural intelligence is a fully developed framework by scholars that really started to gain some momentum in about 2005, 2008. Um, and can be applied to several different uh, fields in situations and contexts. And so what we're talking about is a framework that developed and evolved from our intelligence quotient, also known as uh, general intelligence. And you'll see the abbreviation as IQ, which, of course, from there, we were introduced to emotional intelligence, also known as EQ. Um, and later on, uh, we uh, saw the emergence of cultural intelligence known as CQ. Um, And when we're talking about CQ, what we're talking about is four facets of how cultural intelligence operates. Um, And if you're familiar with IQ, some of this will make sense. Um, Number one, we're talking about cognitive cultural intelligence. And what that means is this notion of I have a cognitive sense of a certain level of knowledge because I've had this experience. So like I know what it's like to be a Kenyan Jordanian man raised in Minnesota. I don't know what it's like to be every Kenyan Jordanian man raised in Minnesota, but I have uh, a frame of reference for that. 
the metacognitive facet of cultural intelligence is really, it's thinking meta, right? And you can think of it as strategy. It's this sense of how do I strategize to gain and garner more cultural intelligence? And there's all kinds of ways in which we can do that. People do it every day. Some do it more intentionally than others, but there's lots of ways that we can do it. There's the motivational facet of cultural intelligence. Um, And this is the idea about like, what is the drive that I have to stay in uh, cross-cultural situations? Because oftentimes in cross-cultural situations, they're uncomfortable. And what we want to do is we want to retreat. And so the motivation is about what makes me stick in that situation? What drives me to want to gain that cultural knowledge and that cultural intelligence? And then perhaps most important is the behavioral facet of cultural intelligence. And this is how do I behave flexibly and change my behavior when in intercultural and cross-cultural situations based on the information that I know, right? And then wrapped in this and introduced uh, a little bit later around 2014 into this framework is this notion of mindfulness. You know, there's a spectrum of mindfulness, right? Uh, For those of us who, who practice yoga or for those of us who meditate, you know, you might be on one end of the spectrum of mindfulness. But what we're really talking about as it relates to, to cultural intelligence <clears throat> is really being mindful about situations that you are in and paying attention to your own reactions in those situations and also to those around you. So what is happening in the dynamics and in different contexts of conversation, of workplace, any sort of situation around you and within yourselves uh, as you're having these intercultural interactions. Oh, that's really keen insight. So I have to ask somebody with your background, somebody with your skill set, how do you think about Minneapolis as it pertains to race relations? Like what's something that you could kind of share with us that will help us better understand your city? So this is the nuance and kind of the puzzling part about Minnesota and Minneapolis and just the Twin Cities in general. These are great places to live, all right? I mean, if you look on the leading economic opportunity, employment rates, uh, education, I I mean, the park system, like we have the number one biking city in the country. We go back and forth with Berkeley. The art scene, I think, is like the number two or three funded art scene, you know, behind New York City and maybe one other place. Um, you know, 17 Fortune 500 companies, which is just massive for the number of people that we have here. Healthcare, traditionally great, right? And comes out of this tradition of liberal politics. So all those things, right, um, that make what I'm about to say quite confusing for a lot of people. Because we also have the worst outcomes or bottom five outcomes in several categories for black people. One of the largest gaps in the country in education. Unemployment rates, one of the biggest gaps for black people compared to white counterparts in the entire country. Home ownership. So so these types of things, right, that you see, it's the tale of two Minnesotas, right? And I think I saw an article recently, someone wrote that called it the paradox of Minnesota or something like that. So now we have this dynamic where you have people in the streets protesting, And what I have seen have been predominantly peaceful protests. I know that there's been a lot of media coverage about riots and looting. And I want to make clear that protesters are not rioters. Protesters are not looters. These are different groups of people and different things. And it looks like everybody's there, right? You got white, you got black, you got indigenous, you got um, Latino folks. And yet 
we still have these huge gaps between folks. And so I think for a lot of people, it's a, a reckoning where people are starting to say, we have been a place of a lot of talk and a lot of theory and a lot of actions that present in a certain way. However, the way that they show up in outcomes are absolutely tragic. And I think people are getting to the point of saying that doesn't work anymore. We can't continue to have that. That's fascinating. Now, can you kind of talk about, given what you've seen and what you experienced and being on the ground, how do you think George Floyd's death has already changed and will continue to change Minneapolis? I think that the nature by which George Floyd died, the length of such a video, the cries out that he had, coupled with the fact that we are in the middle of a global pandemic that is also significantly impacting Black people at higher rates than white folks, and also people of color being impacted at higher rates. The impact of that being you know, significant unemployment and, and all of these factors that in many ways created you know, what one would use the term the perfect storm has not only changed Minneapolis, but has also, I think, been a dynamic eye opener for the world. And in the conversations that I've been facilitating and what I've been hearing is it's a frustrating thing, but it's a reality, which is folks saying, how did I not know that it was this bad? What happened to get to the place that it's at? My complacency is part of the problem. And these are realizations that for people of color and black people, you say, in some cases, very frustrating, like, really? Where have you been? And then you also say, well, yeah, I mean, I'm not necessarily surprised either, right? And I think in Minnesota, and if you've never been here, and if some of the the listeners have never been here, there's a, a prideful sense, which is fascinating, and a lot of us will push back on it, of this notion of Minnesota nice. And the way that I describe it is, passive aggressiveness on steroids. And it is very much this sense for people who move here or even like for myself where you're constantly questioning and guessing if people are sincere. Do they really mean it when they're having conversations with you? Or is it just something that they say and then they turn around and say something different, think something different When they refer to you as friend, are they really friend? Because really, they're not going to invite you to their house oftentimes. They're not going to, you know, we have a big cabin culture here, particularly for, I'd say, the white population. And it's fascinating when I hear from people who have moved here because they're like, yeah, man, what is it with all my coworkers going to their cabin over the weekend? And they want to hang out for happy hour and they want to, you know, do stuff after work, but then they go to their cabin and I never get invited. And so this also impacts this notion of people saying, where have I been? How did I not know this? Because there's this, this sense of passive aggressiveness of this Minnesota nice, don't want to ruffle any feathers uh, for lack of a better uh, metaphor, right? Don't want to go against the grain. Don't want to upset anyone. Don't want to upset the status quo which we know the status quo benefits some people and not others. So, Abdul, in your opinion, where does Minneapolis go from here? How does your community and how can communities begin to start healing from this? It's multifaceted, right? I mean, I think that there is a mix, at least from my interpretation, of what is desired. 
from communities that are being disenfranchised, are being hurt violently, physically, mentally, and emotionally by the systems that have been created uh, and that are working, right? That's what they're created to do when they are working. And I think that some of the, the moves forward are people who are in the dominant culture, in the hegemony, if you will, white people need to shut up and listen for a while. And I don't mean that offensively when I say shut up, right? Like people ask me all the time, what's one thing, piece of advice you give to a good leader? What's one piece of advice you give to a good mentor? My answer is almost always shut up and listen, right? You know, I don't mean like listen to just kind of appease, right? Like I mean actually listen, right? Listen. Listen to understand. Yes, listening to understand and then listening to get to a place of action that is driven by the people who have the experiences we say we desire to improve, right? And then also within that, there is a dynamic of action, right? And I would suggest that any individual being that even slightly pays attention to uh, conversations of race, any CEO or decision maker in an organization can pretty quickly name at least three things that they need to change, implement, improve upon in the short term. I I would challenge anyone to suggest that if you pay any amount of attention to this, that you cannot come up with three things for yourself and or your organization. Those are things where you may not need to spend the next six months listening. I'll give you an example. If we know that organizations have a problem around engagement surveys and the results uh, between employees of color and black employees and white employees. That's something that almost every organization knows, (laughs) that the the marks are going to be lower uh, as far as engagement, happiness, feeling included, what have you, at their organization for black, indigenous, and people of color. Well, then guess what? In the immediate You need to think of something that you can do to begin to change that dynamic. So what are those three things in the immediate that are going to help to heal? Every individual and every organization answers that differently. The president of of the University of Minnesota, and I have some bias in this because I served as a regent at the University of Minnesota for six years, and I chaired the search that brought her in as the president. and, And I take no credit for that because she is talented in and of herself. And I think she would have been the president no matter who chaired that search. And when she heard from her students saying, we need to cut ties with Minneapolis Police Department. And I would venture to say that she was probably considering this already. She did it swiftly. She did it boldly. And she did it within a day. That is something where she said, I know this is a problem. And I know this is something that's going to make our students and a large portion of our staff feel better when they come to work, feel better about how we operate as an institution. And she did it against the will of a lot of people. She's taking backlash for that. So, so I think that's a part of the healing process, this balance between what can we do right now um, and then what are those longer terms? Uh, we need to rebuild these businesses and we need to make sure that it continues to be locally owned. They continue to be owned by people of color. I think that the conversation, I think uh, part of what has been problematic, particularly from the mainstream media, is the, I would say, clear and intentional distortion of what defunding police looks like and what that means. 
um, there's a clear uh, misrepresentation of assuming that defunding equates to dismantling the police department and police, which as I understand it, they are completely separate and not the same at all. Um, so I think coming back to your question, like what needs to happen for healing? Like, I think there needs to be some clarity about what that looks like and some willingness from people to understand the differences in those dynamics. And then longer term, I mean, part of this too, right? We have to, again, recognize that we're in the middle of a pandemic and the pandemic very likely is going to create an even larger gap, particularly educational gap for students of color and white students because of the conditions that people live in, the access to technology that they don't have and have not had, the ability for parents to be able to either take time off of work or have a flex schedule or what have you, because we also know that because of the systems that have been at play for so long, a lot of our Black, Indigenous, and and parents of color are essential workers. And so they may not have been able to spend the time at home around the education system. So, you know, that's something that we need to be factoring in and thinking about because that has, you know, that's a generation of young people. Can you tell the story of how you heard about the, the death of George Floyd and then how the unraveling of Minneapolis happened and then how you kind of felt about that whole thing as it pertains to realizing that this thing was going to create a domino effect, not only in your city, but across the United States and across the world. I woke up that Tuesday morning and I'm one to get up and immediately check my phone. And my sister had sent a link to my family chat with my siblings and I clicked on it and I opened it up and I had no idea what I was going to watch. And I watched the entire thing. Mm -hmm. And then I shed several tears. I kind of got myself together and started to kind of watch the things unfold via social media and television and what have you. And, you know, for me, it was a, a place where my mother lives with me and she's 68, 69. She has, you know, respiratory challenges and some other things. And so I've been pretty cautious during COVID. And so I was torn between, you know, protests and and where to place myself and where not to. Uh, But very quickly, as I started watching the dynamics unfold, I realized that I was going to need to spend time um, out and about. And so I began riding my bike down to different areas around town on that, that Wednesday, that very next day which continued Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and so on and so forth. And I would say the energy was very different. Um, Mm. You can have several emotions and feelings happening at the same time. And there were moments of, you know, you see a building burning and you're like, I've been burning on the inside since I was a kid because of the dynamics that we face. And so there's almost this sense of like, burn that joint down. And then simultaneously, you have this sense of, wait a minute, that building's burning. No, this is not good. Don't, no, 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 don't do that, right? And I'll give you another example when I've been at protests, right? Because depending on you know, how much people have been following, uh, we've also been infiltrated with white supremacists, alt-right organizations, anarchists that are in our neighborhoods, driving around, uh, creating chaos, Uh, very well organized. Um, And we also have folks who are protecting their own neighborhoods in several pockets of Minneapolis and St. Paul. So as a 
person in a protest, at a protest, I am in a moment of beautifulness where I am loving mm-hmm. what is happening in, in the camaraderie and uh, loving black folks and for everything that we are and everything that we aren't loving on us and, and seeing some of the folks who are there in support and allies. And then I am consistently watching folks to see if they are trying to infiltrate with ulterior motives. As you see that happening, you start to kind of process more about why in this moment, this is so much bigger because there is an opposition at work that is very mobilized and organized and has been plotting really since before the election of of President Obama, but certainly heightened at the time that he was elected in 2008. Mm -hmm. And then how did you feel once you started to realize that this reckoning that was happening and this unfolding that was happening in Minneapolis started to spread across the country? Again, right, these mixed emotions. Somebody said recently Prince was the only one that knew that the revolution was starting in Minneapolis. And then at the same time, you're like, no, this is my city. This is not what I I don't want to be known to have come from an incident where a police officer killed another black man. Right. And so so there's this these weird kind of contradictory and confusing moments that are happening at, at kind of at the same time. And again, right, like also coming back to this sense of like Minneapolis, where have you been? We've been telling you this. Right. But you haven't been listening. And so then that's like a sense of frustration, right? And so all these dynamics that are at play at different times are happening. Yeah, just hearing you talk about it, you seem like you were really conflicted in terms of wanting something to happen in terms of it leading to an action, but then also realizing that in order to get to the desired action, things have to come crumbling down, right? Precisely, precisely. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that over and over again, right? Mm -hmm. Like we've seen... Whether it was the bus boycotts for, you know, I think 381 days it took before legislation was passed. Right. Mm-hmm. And and you see, you know, different instances. I mean, even uh, South Africa during apartheid. Right. Like it took massive flooding of the streets and, and movements to get action to take place. And so, you know, there's kind of this uh, mix of emotions and feelings uh, that are happening all while experiencing this beautifulness that's also happening, right? Like when you get out to a place to go try and help with cleanup efforts at 11 a.m., which you're thinking is early and they're almost done, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's like, wait a minute, who, what time were y'all here, right? Like, and so then there's that moment of joy, right? Where you see that happening at the same time. And that's also the representation that I want folks to know about, the city that I call home, that I like to call my city, right? No, it's beautiful. I think um, things that we see in the media, everything that kind of goes viral, sensationalized. Yeah. But what you're, but what you're talking about is, you know, the real healing comes from coming together. Once the storm passes, people have to pick up the rubble and they have to pick up the debris, and that happens when people come together and they see each other for who they are and they realize that in doing so they recognize each other's humanity in the process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, one way that I've been thinking about this, um, yeah, is so I, I lost, we lost a brother in 2013. My brother passed away very suddenly in a motorcycle accident. And 
I've reflected on that, as you could imagine, quite a bit over the years, very privately for the most part. But I remember thinking one day after the burial, you know, after everybody's gone, that's when things really start to kind of sink in and hit and when the healing starts to begin. Right. And you move forward. Um, and I remember reflecting one day and I thought to myself and like my family, I have to tell you, like my family is, is dope. Um, you'll never meet another family like mine. We're, we're dynamic in a lot of ways. We're, you know, misunderstood in other ways and all of those things. Right. And I remember saying that for better or worse, after you lose someone who's an integral part of your family, your family will never be the same. Right. And like, that's okay. Right. But it'll never be what it was. And I think the same for the city of Minneapolis. We will never be what we were before, right? This will always be a moment um, that will live and will be very lively, right? And the hope, though, is that when we move forward, we will only be better and we will only begin to move in a progressive way that does not go back to what was normal, that does not go back to status quo, that does not go back to Minnesota nice, that goes back to a meaningful Minnesota, a Minnesota that is impactful, that is equitable, not just nice, right? And that's kind of the hope that I see and that I think about and wanting to think about Minnesota in a way that is breaking down the system of oppression and the systematic racism and institutional racism that perpetuates throughout the world, maybe we should call ourselves like Minnesota asymptomatic, right? Instead of Minnesota nice. That's what I want to see. Abdul, that's great. You know, just to be respectful of your time, I like to wrap up these conversations by asking my guests um, one final question. And the question is this, What's your message for the world? My message for the world is to make sure that we take the events that we're witnessing, and this expands beyond the killing of George Floyd and kind of the moment in time that we're at now. Uh, This extends well beyond that. But I want us to be thinking about how things are connected and how the impacts or the actions that are happening today are connected to the past, how they're connected to our global community, how they are connected to the actions of someone else at some other time. Because what we tend to do is bracket things in these different spaces and suggest that it is a one-time occasion. And I can tell you that the dynamics that we're experiencing, whether it's a global pandemic and the impacts of a global pandemic or the killing of George Floyd, they're not a one-time or an independent, isolated situation. Mm -hmm. These are all cause and effects and are related in some way. And if we don't make those connections, we will not begin to chip away at the systematic things that disadvantage some people, give advantage to other people. Abdul, thank you for the work that you do and thank you for sharing your perspective with us. You're very welcome and I appreciate you having me on. Uh, I hope one day that we'll be able to uh, meet in person and uh, spend some time together in that way. Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. 
Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. Okay, see you next time.